Hello and welcome. I'm Uri. And I'm Rifki, and you're listening to Talking Tachlis, the podcast where we talk about Jewish life and life in general. So Rifki, I got a bunch of interesting feedback from our discussion last week about um, various holy sites, Jewish, Muslim, Christian, and who's allowed, Mm -hmm. who's not allowed. Um, Obviously, Amazing. yeah, well, so, I mean, I'd love to hear if, if you heard what you heard and talked about also, but yeah, you know, that seemed to be the topic that people were most interested in uh, in discussing, which is fun. It's good when you like hone in on something that like lis- listeners really like respond to. Yeah, well, I think the thing that's mo- closest to home for us is the Kotel and the Temple Mount. Sure. And those are the Kotel a little bit less so, but the Temple Mount, um, you know, disputed, quote unquote. Um, so some of the things that people said to me, um, I'm kind of just consolidating some of the some of the bullet points. First of all, the, the Kotel itself, even though it's not, you don't really see Muslims there, even though I do think Muslims would be allowed to go there. Um, I don't see why they wouldn't be allowed because they don't check your ID or religion at, at the checkpoints to get in. There have been votes at the UN, and of course the Palestinian leadership has said similar things, that the Kotel is part of East Jerusalem, which is over the Green Line, and therefore does not belong to Israel and is occupied territory. So there have been calls and continue to be calls for Israel to evacuate from the Kotel. So it's definitely not universally accepted um, that Jews belong there or are allowed to be there. And mm-hmm. another th- another thing that was uh, brought to my attention, not that I didn't know this, but it's the person thought it was important to point out, and I agree, is that, again, not to paint Islam with a broad brush, but they don't have the best reputation for being open and accepting to other religions. And so, for example, um, the Kotel, which let's call the holy site for Jews, even though the Temple Mount is the holy site, but traditionally Jews haven't really gone on the Temple Mount so much. The Kotel, when it was controlled by Jordan from 1948 to 1967, was completely off limits to Jews. Um, I think we were just discussing before that when the land of Israel was controlled by um, various Muslim dynasties, Jews were sometimes only allowed at the Kotel on Tisha B'Av. Um, interestingly, that was uh, other Christian, Christian. Oh, Christian. Oh, that was Christian. Okay, I'm sorry, Christians. They also not have the best reputation of being open to other religions. Yeah. Obviously, let's just say whenever Jews were a minority, they were never. Yeah. A- um, so, so it is interesting to note and important to note that between 1948 and 1967, in the most recent um, case of Jews not being allowed at the Kotel, Jews were not allowed, not even on Tisha B'av, um, which we'll get into maybe in, the, in our main discussion today, um, at the at the Kotel or in the Old City. So that's just another thing uh, worth noting and obviously now that the Jews are in control the you know they gave that control of the Temple Mount back to the to the Jordanians and uh, the Kotel also we haven't I've never seen a Muslim praying at the Kotel um, but in terms of just walking up I don't see right. any reason why that wouldn't be allowed yeah yeah there, I mean there's something something very odd about it and again we don't have all the information a listener did send us um, a Twitter thread that we can include in the comments that basically talked about who's allowed um, in the both on the Temple Mount and Kotel Plaza, uh, but it was a little bit confusing because it basically was claiming that Palestinians were not allowed uh, in the Kotel Plaza, but it also seems like it was referring specifically to people who are not who do not actually live in Israel. So it's you know people who live either over the Green Line as part of like the the West Bank West Bank, not East Jerusalem Green Line, but people who are you know um, actually in more muddy territory, right areas A, B, and C, and also people who do not live in Israel at all, you know, people who live in um, America or something like that, that there might be more controls in, in, in ways like that. But right. it doesn't make it clear about 
Muslims who live in Jerusalem and freely wander about the city totally with, with their, you know, equal citizenship, right? So it seems like maybe in that case, they're allowed to go to the Kotel just as they're allowed to go into any sort of grocery store. Though, I, I feel like still a little bit confused about that because I would imagine, you know, that if that were the case, I would have seen it, right? Like, I, I mean, Uriah, I, I don't know. Like, I feel like I lived in the old city for two years when I was studying between high school and college. And when I was living in the old city, I don't think I remember ever once seeing a single Muslim person, not that I knew of, obviously, uh, at the Western Wall Plaza. And I kind How would of you wonder, know if they're Muslim or not? Right. I'm saying that's what I said, not to my knowledge. Mm-hmm. I don't. Visibly of Muslim. I, of course, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. But I'm saying, like, if you wanted to be provocative, right, which people who like to congregate on the West, on the Temple Mount, for example, Jews and Muslims both, very often intentionally are provocative. I would imagine if Israeli Muslims were totally allowed to congregate on the Western Wall Plaza, that would be a pretty easy way to start a provocation. As we know, as we talked about last week, from other types of provocations right. uh, at the Kotel. Like, I would imagine that it would be a pretty easy place to, to do something like that. So I'm surprised that it's never happened if it is totally something that they could have access to. So I, I just don't know. Yeah, I wonder the same thing. I was thinking about that. If any of our And listeners, I also want to, yeah. Discl- yeah, disclaimer to our listeners, we tried to find out this information. We looked we for, a, for a lot of research. Yeah. yeah. If any listeners know of any sort of uh, Muslim provocation at the Kotel itself, I'd be very curious to hear about that. I have never heard of that either. Yeah, and it's interesting. I actually, on one of the birthright trips that I staffed, we actually went to the West Bank and we heard from a Palestinian and not like a Zionist Palestinian because I've heard from those also. But um, this Palestinian was saying that he you know, lives in the West Bank and he has mm-hmm. been to the Temple Mound a couple times in his life, but he can't just go whenever he wants. He needs to get special permission. Right, right, right. And one of, the, one of his main claims against Israel was saying that he's, they're being repressed and oppressed because you know, religious Muslims in the West Bank and Gaza aren't don't have access to their holy site at the Temple Mount. And so I just think it's important to put that into context. And first of all, the, the, his not being allowed to go there is not because he's Muslim. It's because he's Palestinian. That's not a religious discrimination. You can call it discrimination, but it's not because he's Muslim. It's because he is Palestinian in the West Bank. And I think it's also very important to realize that before the Second Intifada, those restrictions were not in place. And he talked, to, he even admitted that. He said his father, I think he said when he was a little kid, he, you know, he's old enough that he was a little kid, they were able to freely go to the Temple Mount. And once the Second Intifada happened and, and the, the wall was put up and the restrictions were put in place, the checkpoints and everything, then they weren't allowed to go. So first of all, it's important to realize that it wasn't always like this. It was in response, direct response to the terror attacks of the Second Intifada. And the the restrictions that are there in the part on the part of Israel are not, based on religion they're just they're based on security which i think is very different from barring uh you know the temple mount you know non-muslims not allowed to pray that's purely a religious thing or mecca non-muslims not allowed into the city that's obviously purely a religious thing mm-hmm. sure so I, I so as we talk about the temple mount as we talk about the kotel i think it, it seamlessly fits into our topic for this week uri mm-hmm. which is of course what else would it be at the first week of August? It is about Tisha B'Av. On this coming Sunday, we, and we can actually discuss who we is in a minute because that's actually a complicated part of this, but we'll be commemorating Tisha B'Av, which is the saddest day in the Jewish calendar. The Talmud recounts five events that occurred on the 9th of Av, which is Tisha B'Av. Number one, the 12 spies returned from their mission to scout the land. And as any of us with a memory of the biblical story of the spies did not go super well. And that's actually why 
the Israelites were forced to wander in the desert for 40 years and not allowed. And it's uh, there's a midrash. There's like a, a story related to the Torah. Uh, it's almost like a like God basically says to the Israelite people, like, oh, you're crying about this? Like, I'll really give you something to cry about, that, mm-hmm. that being the, the destructions of the temple. Uh, okay, the next thing that happened is that the first temple was destroyed and the Babylonian exile began. Next thing, the second temple was destroyed by Rome. And the big exile, which is really the one that we're still experiencing, we'll discuss that as well, began. The next thing is that the Romans crushed the revolt of Bar Kokhba, which was after the destruction of the second temple when they were attempting to wrest control back of the land. And the Romans destroyed the city of Betar, in which they killed over half a million Jews. And the last thing is that the site of the temple, even after the destruction of the temple itself, but the site was completely plowed over. Beyond these tragedies, Teshubab has come to be thought of as our general day of mourning, in which we remember all tragedies that occurred around this time of year throughout history. And this includes crusades, expulsions from countries and cities all over the world. Unfortunately, as we know, we've had many of those. And even the mass deportation of Jews from Warsaw in 1942, many of whom were later killed in the Treblinka, in the Treblinka death camp. So on Tisha B'Av, we generally refrain from the same activities as Yom Kippur, including, of course, a 25-hour fast, in which we refrain from eating and drinking. Unlike Yom Kippur, though, this is not in order to achieve a sense of purity and closeness. Rather, it's meant to be a physical representation of our pain and our mourning. And of course, unlike Yom Kippur, the vast majority of the world's Jews don't actually fast on Tisha B'Av, let alone know about it. So there's a lot to talk about regarding Tisha B'Av. But for starters, there are a few things we want to discuss. For one, there's always been quiet chatter, which seems to not really have picked up steam, but it's always like an undercurrent, I feel like, of canceling quote-unquote Tisha B'Av, not canceling as we often like to talk about these days. Especially canceling it now that we have a strong, powerful Jewish state and we have control over the city of Jerusalem. Uri, yes, we don't have the temple anymore, but does that idea, this idea of canceling or changing or thinking about Tisha B'Av differently, does that resonate with you at all? And let's go back to this idea of like not many Jews even knowing about Tisha B'Av. Uri, what do you think? Why isn't it a commonly known day in the Jewish calendar? And why is it generally exclusively practiced among the Orthodox and the more right-wing conservative groups? And finally, Uri, I'm really wondering, and this is kind of just a, a, a broad, complicated question, I think. But unlike other holidays, especially biblical holidays, obviously, we really talk about possibly not fasting at Tisha B'Av in the future. And different halakhic sources give different ways that we're going to know when that day has finally come, that day that Tisha B'Av has turned from a day of mourning into a day of joy. So, Uri, I'm wondering, forget about the sources for a minute, right? Don't use them, but we're not using them as a cheat sheet. What would that look like for you? When would you feel like it's really time to truly celebrate Tisha B'Av? I know that's a lot, Uri. Yeah, very... So you take your time on this one. Very interesting questions. The third one, I think, is the hardest to answer. I don't know if I really have an answer to that. I agree. We, we can <laughs> maybe get to that if we have time, but I think the first two are a lot more uh, doable. Uh, I think they're actually sort of like coming from opposite ends. Because like when you talk mm. about some people who want to cancel Tisha B'Av, there's, you know, the ones, the people who don't even know what it is or the people who think it's not relevant because they're not really so affiliated or because they don't connect at all with like the temple. That's one extreme. The other extreme of canceling it is like they they relate very much to to religion and orthodoxy and and our history and stuff and our connection to the land. And it's because of the establishment of the state of Israel and the um, Jewish um, sovereignty over Jerusalem and and the Kotel and, and the Temple Mount that people say, well, you know, after 1967, I mean, it, like the Six Day War, if that's not, you know, 
the time to think about ending Tisha B'Av, like, you know, when is. Um, obviously, it's not exactly the Messiah, but it's it's it seems like, uh, especially at the time, I think people really thought it was something along those lines. Um, I was personally curious. Um, it's funny because Tisha B'Av is like, I think more than any other holiday, tell me if you think I'm wrong, it's more than any other holiday in Orthodox circles. It's the one that everybody's like, the first question that's asked and answered like in camp and in school and stuff is like, well, not school because it's in the summer, but why do we, why do we celebrate this day? Like, or, or why do we commemorate this day? Why do we mm-hmm. fast on this day? Like, what is the relevance to our lives? You know, like for all the other holidays, either the relevance is obvious or it's like the Torah told us to do it. So like, that's really the reason we do it. And then we can talk about reasons and whatever. But Tisha B'Av is like, you know, even for Orthodox Jews, I think it, you have to sell it. You have to explain it to, to, to a lot of people. But for non-Orthodox, I think it's to answer one of your questions about the you know people who don't even know about it. I think it's even more clear. So I, I was just curious. I looked on reformjudaism.org, for example, and I searched Tisha B'Av. Mm-hmm. And reformjudaism.org says, Tisha B'Av, observed on the 9th of the Hebrew month of Av, is a day of mourning the destruction of both ancient temples in Jerusalem. Liberal Judaism never has assigned a central religious role to the ancient temple, so mourning the destruction of the temple may not be particularly meaningful to liberal Jews. They say that explicitly. And then they go on to say, like, there's also other tragedies of Jewish history that, that can be commemorated, mm-hmm. on, that are commemorated on Tisha B'Av. Um, so, but they're honest, and that makes sense. That if they don't, right. if they don't believe in like ritual sacrifice and the importance of a of a ritual uh, temple in Jerusalem, then why should they mourn its destruction? And then I saw on um, reconstructingjudaism.org, which is like the reconstructionist um, sure. site, um, they even take it a step further. I don't think reform, most reform people would be against this this idea, but they don't say it explicitly on on their site for Tishba. But reconstructing Judaism said basically talked about how doing service on Tisha B'Av and, and helping the poor and, and uh, helping uh, those in need is, is like a good thing to do because we're not really thinking so much about the temple because that's not really so central to our, our thought. And at the end of um, that uh, paragraph talking about the different service that can be done, like, you know, feeding the hungry, housing the homeless, um, you could hold a teach-in on social issues such as sex trafficking or the repression of certain ethnic groups. At the end, it says, observances similar to those of Martin Luther King Jr. Day, a day of service, are appropriate to Tisha B'Av. So I don't have a problem with service and things that are done on Martin Luther King Jr. Day, but like to say that's what Tisha B'Av is, is definitely not the Orthodox um, perspective. So that's, that's actually interesting because that, to me, feels like oh my gosh, that's really getting to the essence of what I think in a lot of ways the Talmud was also talking about for Tisha B'Av, right? Because the, the Talmud explicitly, well, not Tisha B'Av exactly, but the Talmud, right, has this discussion, um, which is, I think, like a famous thing that at least in um, Orthodox schools is often discussed um, as the destruction of the Second Temple. Uh, so the question that the Talmud asks is, why was the Second Temple destroyed? Like, we know the First Temple was destroyed because they were, you know, they weren't learning Torah and they weren't keeping kosher, something like that, whatever. Uh, but why was the Second Temple destroyed? Uh, because they, we know that they were doing all those things. And the, the Talmud answers, oh, the Second Temple was destroyed? Yeah, 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 fine. They were doing all those things, but they, it was destroyed because of Sinat Chinam. Right? Mm-hmm. It was destroyed because of baseless hatred, because they weren't treating each other well. Mm-hmm. And the Talmud goes, or, or commentaries go into different understandings of what that means, what they were doing exactly. But the idea, 
And Rev Cook famously brings us down more recently that the way that you can kind of repair the destruction that was caused by sinar chinam, by baseless or hate, hating the other, is by avat chinam, by just loving people, by just doing for other people. And there's also a different explanations today for people talk often about that Rev Cook quote and what that looks like. So it sounds like the Reconstruction is well, Judaism website actually almost nails that. Right? What the they're only, basically saying is yeah. well, they're not talking about the temple, right? But what they're talking about is the reasoning behind it almost in a way, in a way that to me feels like a little bit inspiring. They're saying you what you should do on this day is do things for other people. Be a good person and be loving and generous towards strangers, right, towards anyone. The one difference being that when... Well, the, there's a million differences. No, the main difference I, is but that... But I think the icker the, there feels, feels strong. Well, no, because no? I think... I don't agree with that because I think the main difference is that not that there's any... Of course, it is a value to help outside people outside the Jewish community but when the sages say that the the temple was destroyed because of sinat chinam basis hatred they were talking about basis hatred between Jews and the repair of that is to to love other Jews specifically other Jews I, I'm pretty sure that's traditionally at least what it was referring to and so then to say Martin Luther King Jr. as great as that is that has nothing to do with Jews specifically. And by saying that, hey, what's Tisha B'Av? Well, you can basically treat it like Martin Luther King Day. That's literally just taking the Jewishness out of Judaism, which I think is sad. Like, why can't Tisha B'Av be Tisha B'Av and Martin Luther King Day is Martin Luther King Day? And I think just, I mean, that gets into a lot of the differences between Reform and Orthodox, which is they universalize the particularism. Orthodox is much more particular and they uh, Reform will universalize it to, to the world oftentimes to the neglect of, of Jewish concerns or Jewish uh, endeavors. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, there's, there's yeah. a balance there, sure. Okay, yeah, so balance. 100%. Okay. But so like, meaning, is Tisha B'Av really the day to focus on other groups, or is it the day to focus on, if you don't want to focus on the temple, maybe to focus on service to Jews who are in need, or, or repairing um, damage between relationships among groups of Jews specifically? I, I, I have no qualms with that approach. I think that's a lovely idea. And there's a lot that, of course, a lot of help that the internal Jewish community needs as well. I, I would okay, totally yes, yeah, so I'm just pointing that, that out, and that, that difference of in philosophy. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. But like, there's also, right, the, the Nevi'im, right, the prophets specifically have all of these quotes where like, you know, God's even saying, right, uh, what what is a fast day to me? Why do I even care if you're fasting, if you're not being good to other people, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah, okay, we could say that they're probably talking about other Jews or other Israelites, I guess, you know, back, back then mm-hmm. before the splitting of the kingdoms. Um, but I, it's not like they're saying like, Hold on, like you can obviously treat non-Jews poorly, and like who who get right? Gives of crap course, about it's them. not it's not but one like, or the other. But but ultimately, like I, I don't know. I feel like looking at the Reconstructionist Judaism argument to like use it as a day of service and helping other people. Like I feel like that is a beautiful, wonderful thing. Like. I just I feel like we have to say that first and okay. foremost. So you, can make, you yeah. can make like claims about sort of like okay, so like what populations do you want to help first and whatever, whatever, whatever. But like I, you can also make the claim that like you should look first at the actions and then like yeah, if Jews need help with that particular department, if Jews need help, you know, if the, it's like oh, go to a soup kitchen. Sure, if there's a Jewish soup kitchen or whatever, or kosher, whoever. There sure, are plenty of those. Sure, but but do do you understand the argument that I'm making? Um. I think we just disagree on on like the priorities. I, I think the point. I th- I would state the exact opposite. I would say it's about you know repairing damage in among the Jewish community. So what can we do to do that? And you're saying, you know, what kind of services are out there? What kind of ser- service uh, is out there? 
And now, are there Jewish options? Are there not Jewish options? Who might need that the most? Like, again, that's it's very nice, but um, we're just looking at it from different sides. I guess, yeah. I mean, I'm not making, let me also be clear, I'm not making a claim about which one is better. Okay. I just feel like, especially on the, the day that we're talking about how we can more love and support. Yes, there is that our, our internal Jewish my community. Point is, yeah, my like, point is not to criticize. Yeah, but okay. So if I'm going to criticize, I don't criticize. So I'm just pointing out that it's interesting. I was personally interested to see how these were presented, and again, how the, on the reform site they did focus on Jewish tragedies right. and stuff. Reconstructionists made it more universal. I also just think. I mean, I remember this was a few years ago, and if, um, you probably remember also in 2014 during the Gaza War. That was kind of when, if not now, was like gaining a lot of traction and um we've spoken about them a lot They're... should we talk about if not now this week did you see what what happened with if not now this week no they held like a habdella service um that they shared they were like um campaigning kind of like with a whatever there was like a, there's a candidate who if not now is supporting and they did a habdella service together with that candidate and they took a photo of it and put it on twitter and it was clearly daylight Oh, yeah. Okay. I didn't. Yeah, I didn't realize that was if not now. I guess I did. I did see that. I did see that. Yeah. I mean, that people were making fun of that. That's I mean, Shabbos ends at, you know, after nine o'clock. I they're not orthodox. They can, you know, I don't I, they do a lot of things that offend me a lot more than making Havdalah when it's still light outside. For example, in 2014, um, if you recall, <laughs> um, the, the, the Gaza war was, uh, you know, in, in full swing that summer. And so if not now held a Tishabov service where they, instead of mourning the temple, they mourned the conflict and the war in Israel-Palestine, and they read the names of all the people that were killed. So to be fair, I I believe they read the names of both the Israelis and the Palestinians that were killed. However, there were many, many times more Palestinians who were killed, and therefore most of the time of the ceremony was taken up on Tisha B'Av by reading the names of the Palestinians who were killed. And again, I, as sad as it is that Palestinians were killed, I wish not a single one of them had been killed or had to be killed. I don't, that I think is a line for me. Like if you want to help non-Jews versus Jews, like, okay, you're helping people. If you want to, you know, com- mourn for our enemies uh, instead of for the Jewish people, that is, can be argued at least to be the literal opposite point of Tisha B'Av. When you say our enemies, you're saying, didn't they also read out loud names of civilians? Yeah, but they did both. It was, I don't think they read only the civilians. They read all the, all the names that they can get a hold of, of Palestinians who were killed, so most saying, of whom were killed right. trying to kill Jews. Most of whom? The, whatever, the that's not ones, the point. The whatever point, it is, many of whom. Uh, 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 so I'm saying the, the argument that you're making is if they were just reading out loud the names of civilians, Jew or non-Jew, maybe it would still be like not an, an amazing feeling for you because as you were saying before, you really want to focus on Jewish tragedy and tragedy that befell our people on this day, but it wouldn't feel as bad to you. But the fact that they're reading out loud the names also of terrorists and, you know, people who are explicitly trying to to murder Jews and Israelis to you, that felt like so, so kind of a, a over the line. Pale. I mean, not just me. I think a lot of people were very upset about that. I Oh, but I, I wasn't. <laughs> no, I know. I, I know. I, I'm just saying. I too yes, am upset yeah. about that. I was just trying but, to yes. understand your claim. No. And I, that also, again, I don't I was just mentioning that of different approaches to Tisha B'Av, um, mm-hmm. and ones that stood out to me, um, because I think for, for like I said, for everybody, including Orthodox, it's a difficult day to wrap our heads around and and uh and so different groups i think have different approaches right. for how to do that it's interesting i mean i, I think that tesha in some ways is a difficult day for us i think but 
I think often that's for logistical reasons. Like it's in the middle of the summer, for example. So it's really hot and unpleasant and the days are longer. So unlike Yom Kippur, you're fasting till, you know, really late at night. I think it's going to be something like nine o'clock this year, which is just like physically demanding, especially when it's 90 something degrees outside. You know, that's hard. Also, kids aren't in school, so you don't have sort of that sense of structure. And sometimes they're in summer camp and summer camp can provide a really amazing and incredible educational opportunity. But, you know, it's, it's different. Not everyone is in camp. You know, mm-hmm. camp's expensive. And, you know, just for plenty of logistical reasons. Also, like, summer's a time where families are on vacation. You might just want to travel and you might just want to relax. And, like, Tisha B'Av kind of just ruins that. So does the three right. weeks and the nine days. That's probably There's always all great of us. concerts during the three weeks and the nine 100%. days. A hundred percent. It's 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 really it's tough. It's tough. Um, and like you just yeah. want to be in the pool the whole time. But what I was gonna say is that even though I think it's true that it is difficult for logistical reasons, from an emotional perspective, and I think this is really such a personal thing and probably says so much about the person saying it and you know, less so about what it is, to me Tishabel feels really much more emotionally and spiritually resonant than something like Yom Kippur. Mm. Tishabov to me, when you talk about the destruction of a center of the Jewish people, right? Forget about temple, forget about what sacrifice, right? Even though obviously sacrifice was an integral part of the temple service, right? The idea of the temple being a central place for all different types of Jews, and not just Jews, by the way, the temple was explicitly meant to be a place that all people could come together to celebrate God, Jew or not, right? right? So even back then, non-Jews were allowed there. Yeah, <laughs> we're very consistent, but uh, and and meant to be in the future, right? That's something that you know the 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 Torah talks about often that the the peoples of the world will come together to celebrate God at the temple, right? And there's you know talk about how the the plaza will miraculously expand, right, to let in all the people. You know, it's interesting to think about that in COVID times. But um, I think the idea of it being like to me, there's something so beautiful about it, right? And there's something so destructive about the fact that when the temple was destroyed and when we were exiled and we splintered into a million different physical locations and today we're not just you know in in some ways today it's a beautiful thing and we're all coming home to israel in a lot of ways and all you have jews coming back from morocco and yemen and um you know all over the place right paris it's really it's obviously a beautiful and amazing and inspiring thing but also our divisions amongst ourselves and with non-Jews, especially on the Temple Mount, which is the, supposed to be the site of, of the, the closeness and the togetherness, is, is awful, right? Like, um, or you sent me an article, and of course we'll leave this in the, in the show notes, that, that you know, made this exact argument that the, the two most divisive and complicated and thorny issues, and this was, I think, maybe 10 years ago, but I, you know, it hasn't changed, mm-hmm. were the divide between the religious and the secular in Israel, and the divide, then the, the, the the conflict between Jews and, and Arabs. I mean, Jews the Temple Muslims. Mount itself in that area is yeah. the epicenter of those yes. two major conflicts, Jews versus Muslims and, and Jews versus Jews within the right. hotel. Yeah. And, and both of them, especially Jew versus Jew, is, is what we think about on Tisha B'Av as being the worst part. And it feels like today, you know, we're almost just as far away as we've been for thousands of years. And it doesn't feel like we're any closer to reconciliation on any of these points. So I guess now we can, we can address you know, even though we don't have answers, that that last question of sort of like, what would it look like? What would it look like to say, like, you know, we're actually a little bit closer. This day that we want to turn from a day of mourning to a day of celebration, this idea that we want to turn, right? The Rav Cook idea of turning baseless hatred into baseless love. Like, what would it look like to celebrate a day like this? Yeah. 
I mean, I, I definitely appreciate your um, broadening, and it's not just you. Obviously, the rabbis, the sages, the, the, no, the Gemara. No, I came up with that. No, but it's not just no. about the temple specifically. No, they got it it's about in the loss of our sovereignty, the loss of our unity, and the, all those things, the, the dispersal of our people. But I think it's important to say it can never, for Orthodox, I think, it can never not be about the temple. It can also be about other things, but it is has to also be about the temple. Um, and I also think, like, even if you, you look at Jewish history and you look at even the Bible, like Tanakh, there was always conflict within the Jewish, within the Israelites, within the Jewish people, whatever you want to call it. Like, it's very hard to find a time period when there wasn't conflict. So I don't, you know, I'm just thinking, like, maybe a little bit cynically and realistically, but, like, I don't know what time period you can really point to besides maybe, like, some very, very narrow ones of when, like, that's when we're, what we're aiming for, where there, were no, there was no divisiveness. To answer your question, though, like, of what would it look like, that, I think, is part of why Tishabov, even though I agree with what you said of, like, the it's not so hard to think about things that are worth mourning in terms of the, our loss as a people um, and our ancestors and things like that, but... Um, what does the fixing of that look like? You know, specifically in terms of building the temple, because I think that is the most obvious thing connected to, to Tishabov. Like, you actually will see, I see this a lot, um, when people criticize quote-unquote extremists, it's the ultra-Orthodox extremists who want to rebuild the temple. And, like, people use that as, like, a claim against the quote-unquote extremist, like, settlers, let's say, that, like, they're, they're so crazy that they have a religious vision that they're going to build another temple on the Temple Mount where the Dome of the Rock is. Which I guess means they're going to have to destroy the Dome of the Rock, which is so horrible to Muslims, so hateful to Muslims. Therefore, these settlers are so extreme and crazy because they want to do that. And, like... Every time I see that, like, I, I squirm a little bit because, like, on the one hand, I don't like that at all, that framing of it. I think it's, like, very unfair, but isn't, but at the same time, like, I don't know what I, is that what I want? Do I, you know, like, I, I sort of think so. I think I'm supposed to want that. Like, you know, Rifki, what are your thoughts on that? Like, what, what does building the temple mean? And, like, do we, is it relevant to think of that in the current political context? Or do we say, like, w- when we get to that point, if we get to that point, all of our current like calculations don't apply. So therefore, that's not really a question we have to answer. So the temple is something that I think in some ways I feel very strong connected to, as you just, you know, as, as we just talked about, like I see it as a place of real unity within the world and within the Jewish people. I think, as we all see, we're not there, right? We're nowhere near there. So today, the idea of building the temple Right, which I think we would all agree, I think would really descend into World War III. I don't see us, you know, building a temple today and God saying, like, you guys nailed it. Like, we're, we're, we're in a good place now. You know, we solved it. Um, and I think most people don't see building the temple as something that is a, is, a, is a good idea right now with the political reality. Now, obviously, it's a different conversation about, like, in an ideal world, right, in a world in which everyone wanted to do that, in a world in which that could help bring not only political peace, but a greater sense of connection with God, with the entire world and with God, I think, you know, it would be a, a, you know, lovely, beautiful thing to have that. Again, I'm not talking about like what that looks like in terms of sacrifice. I do not, that that is not something that I feel like, well, there are legit legit Jewish sources. I believe the Rambam talks about this, that it wouldn't necessarily be the case that there would be animal sacrifice in the third temple. So I don't think you have to take that for, for granted that that's part of it. 
who who knows yeah the whole thing feels like so yeah feels like so unknown um but it's interesting like this is this is me i feel like i'm i'm almost like parodying myself like eh, whatever you know there's a consistency to that but like to me when i think about what it looks like to like truly celebrate tishabov or what what i would feel like we did it or we made it or we're closer would would really be movement in that direction, strong movement in that direction. In which direction? In the direction, direction, of, in the direction of, of peace. Peace within the Jewish people and peace within the world, right? Peace with between Jews and non-Jews in which we could all go to the Temple Mount and pray together, pray mm-hmm. in whatever way we each pray, mm-hmm. right? Especially <laughs> Muslims and Jews who pray so similarly, right? You look at like Muslims' monuments. Have you ever like looked at this? Like um, they, if you look up... um like Muslim prayer times, you basically find identical websites to Jewish prayer times Mm -hmm. because they pray more than us. They pray five times a day, but they calculate the timing for their prayer in the same exact way that we do. They just have different names for it. Mm -hmm. Like there's something so similar in a way that's like actually incredible. Like the idea of being able to be on the Temple Mount Obviously, there's you know complications and restrictions and blah 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 all those caveats fine. But being able to to be in a place of prayer, we talked about this last week when we talked about like how I would find it amazing to be at the hotel, you know, next to a, a Muslim person who was you know praying in their way there. Like mm-hmm. I think that would be awesome. And when I think about what Tishabov could look like in the future, that's what I see. What I see is like people engaged in a relationship with God together in whatever way they choose to do. That's very beautiful. And I think at least for the the first part of what you said I don't know anybody that would really have any sort of issue with that in terms of Tisha being a time to reflect on what we could hope for 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 peace and peace amongst the Jewish people peace between uh, the Jews and, and other peoples and peoples at large um, the someone should tell the internet yeah maybe you should uh, the the next part about uh, you know Who do I talk to the next part about uh, how, thinking about uh, hoping to be able to you know pray Jews and Muslims together um, at the Kotel at the Temple Mount that maybe not as many people would maybe think of it that way uh, but I guess one other thing that I think about getting back to sort of the, the beginning of our discussion about how different people view Tishabov or like when we talk about trying to repair the the baseless hatred and turn into to love how people interpret that and impose it onto different types of conflicts. I think we, we've talked about this a lot. I bring this up a lot that Jews tend, I think to be very self-critical Jews. I think excel at self-flagellation just like, you know, like the guy in um the Da Vinci Code who has like you know that's like a Christian thing obviously but like people who whip themselves or have like spikes in their in their legs that's like the mm-hmm. the, the physical way of doing it we do it more like emotionally um, but and I think there's a place for that and I actually kind of think that there's it's not a coincidence like the the self criticism I think is connected to the success of Jews over the centuries in, in many areas, because when you're very hard on yourself, you have very high standards for yourself. And when you set high standards, you're more likely to achieve higher, higher, uh, you know, accomplishments, I think. But I think there's different ways of doing it. And that's what gets into my, what upsets me about the, if not now thing and things like that, you know, the things like this have to be a two-way street to some extent and not to turn this into a whole other thing i just like again putting out my crazy thought for the (laughs) the episode um it has to be a two-way street and if and if muslims for example 
um, have a history and a current practice of being completely closed to other religions, um, even religions that had those, you know, I don't think it's a total coincidence that, that the Temple Mount is holy for Christians and for Muslims. Obviously, we had it first, and then because their religions are offshoots of ours, those sites are holy to them also. Um, so there is a certain irony and maybe even something to mourn about on Tisha B'Av that the Christians have the Vatican, that's just theirs. Muslims have Mecca, that's just theirs. We have the Temple Mount and the Kotel, and that's like one of the most you know, complicated, conflicted places in the whole world, even though, in theory, it should be ours. Maybe not just ours, but at least whatever. So I think these things have to be two-way street. And that's just something that I've been thinking about. When it comes to self-criticism, it's okay Wait, so what's to... The, yeah. what's the, I'm sorry, what's the argument that you're making there? What needs to be... a a two-way street. You're saying we sh- Two-way street means that we're in this deadly conflict, but only one of the sides is criticizing itself. And if an outsider looked at the conflict and what people are saying about it, they're going to see a lot more criticism of Israel, especially coming from within Israel and from Jews around the world. And they're just not going to see that on the Palestinian side. And I'm not saying not to criticize Israel, obviously, but I think to be oblivious to that reality or to ignore that reality is just very irresponsible. It's like, I'm reading this book now, it's called The War on the West by Murray Douglas. And um, a lot of the things that people talk about with double standards and stuff apply to both Israel and America. And he brought up just a very interesting thing, I'll say quickly, which is like, after, um, you know, America is going through this um, reckoning about with racism, especially in in 2020 with George Floyd being killed and, and that the aftermath of that. And he brings these sources, and I, we can put them in the notes if you want, um, of specifically Russia, China, and actually North Korea, like officials from those three countries who have horrible records on human rights. In China, there's like literally concentration camps for the Uyghurs, and North Korea, not even worth going into what they do to their mm-hmm. own people. And those countries all were saying, like, America is so racist. It's like, we, we, we you know, so horrible with what's going on with George Floyd and the racism and whatever. And it's like, yeah, because they those countries don't talk about their own criticisms. Only we do that. So therefore, they're going to jump onto that and take advantage of that. And the absurdity of this is that those countries act as if they don't have any problems because they don't talk about their problems. So they pretend that they're not there. But because Americans were so and are so self-critical about how irredeemably racist America is, those countries then point to America and say, look, even their own people are saying how racist they are. That's how terrible America is. So again, I'm not trying to like deflect or whatever, but like I think similar thing for Jews. And that's something that I think about in relation to Tisha B'Av, like in preparing for this episode. It's like, yes, there's a lot to criticize. And if not now, reading the names of the, of the Palestinians, like I'm not saying those lives were worthless and I'm happy that they did, that they died. Of course not. But how do we criticize ourselves? How do we talk about like the problems that need to be fixed in our own community? And in what forms do we do that? And how publicly do we do that? And how do we announce it to the world? And, you know, what should the proper way of doing that be? I think that's also something maybe to think about in these type of uh, Tisha B'Av related discussions. Okay. I mean, as as you know, Uri, like, I love self-adulation. I think <laughs> the whole world could do with more of it. So the idea of saying, like, you know, it should be proportionate. I agree. We should all be doing it constantly, societally and individually. Um, I'm totally with you on that. Um, and, you know, in the same way, like, I I, I agree that... The idea of North Korea turning around and saying that the U.S., um, you know, is committing all these atrocities is obviously hilarious. But at the same time, forget about North Korea. We should be mature enough to be able to say, let's look at ourselves and make sure that we're acting in the best way we should. And when I say we, I mean America, I mean Jews, I mean us individually. I think that if a, a huge, you know, if an evil person 
an evil person. Do I believe people are evil? If the, the leadership of North Korea and Russia and China turn around and say, Rifki, you're not being a good enough person. You suck. Like, I can say, hey, guys, why don't you go work on yourselves right now? Go away. But I should also be constantly thinking about whether I'm being the best version of myself. Agreed. So, like, the idea of, like, you know, America doesn't need to take criticism or, you know, we're talking about, like, Israel and the UN and all these things. You know, it's obviously a classic thing right. of, like, the UN right. clearly disproportionately treats Israel like a pariah way more so than other countries, which deserve it a lot more. That being said, Israel is not perfect, just like any other country is not perfect, just like individuals are not perfect. So for Israel to not engage in self which is which is a natural thing, right? All of us become defensive when we are attacked and therefore put up more barriers than we even deserve to have, right? We, we all do that. I do that as a, as a person. We do that, like, you know, when... I don't need to give examples. I think there's something intuitive that we all know about that. I was going to give, you know, like... But when when... When Uri, when you say, Rifki, why are you blah, 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 I'm instantly sort of like, I'm not like, I don't know, why am I being like that? Like, I, I, I you Get know, it, it, yeah, like, right. it, I'm, inst- right. I'm hurt and I, you know, I, I can't, I don't react that way. But I think that's something that hypothetically we, we want to be better, right? We, 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 we as people and we as a country and we as a nation. So I would like to think that, you know, for Israel, yes, what, what If Not Now does is, is often offensive and inappropriate and all of those things. And, you know, the way that, you, you know, as you were talking about before about like, oh, and they're Jordanian. Then like, okay, so the Jordanians, they, they treated us like crap. Okay, so so what? So right. does that so mean we now... Like, I'm not, okay. right. Yeah, so I'm not saying that therefore we don't need to criticize ourselves and there's nothing to criticize. My point was it's something to think about how we do the criticism and how we contextualize it. It's a matter of degree and it's a matter of how we do it. That's something, I'm just saying that's something that I'm personally thinking about a lot right now. Okay, I hear you. Well, if you listeners are thinking about the same thing, uh, no, uh, you know, as, as usual, of course, um, Uri, this was a great conversation. You know, we said we wanted to talk about Tisha, but we weren't exactly sure how to do it. But I, I, I appreciated this conversation. I think it's going to enhance enhance my fast on Sunday. So thank you, Uri. Thank you. Um, and yes, listeners, for real, we really do, as always, want to hear from you. Please, please be in touch with us. Join the conversation on our Facebook page, Talking Tacos Podcast. And of course, shoot us an email, Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks, as always, to Drive-In Productions. They are the sponsor of this week's episode. And thank you to Triple Threat Trio featuring Rage Brigade. They are the official band of Talking Talkless. Bye, everyone. Zagazunt. <laughs>